turn with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look at just two verses this morning, just briefly, verses 25 and 26. Genesis 4, 25 and 26. Today, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we come connected. This isn't just Wiser Lake Chapel coming. We come connected to God's people in all ages. This same sacrament has been celebrated regularly for 2,000 years now in churches of all kinds, by people of all different languages and cultures in a lot of different ways. People from all over the world who trust in Christ, all Christians everywhere, repeatedly come here to uh, return to their roots. Here we profess our common faith. Here we again proclaim the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for us sinners and rose from the dead in victory. And so as we come here, we're connected with all Christians everywhere who have confessed these things. Oh, but our connection goes way back beyond that. Way back beyond even the initiation of this sacrament, for the Lord's Supper was initiated as Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. The Passover that he was about to fulfill the next day on the cross. And so this sacrament is connected to the Passover observance. <clears throat> Another celebration of remembrance, where for 1,500 years God's people Israel celebrated the fact that the Lord had delivered them out of the slavery in Egypt, and year after year they put to the, uh, kill the Passover lamb to, to, to celebrate the fact and remember the fact that they once were slaves, but now they've been set free. And so when we come to celebrate Jesus, our Passover lamb, shedding his blood for us. We're not only in continuity with all the Christians of the last 2,000 years, but of God's people even back to the time of the Passover, another 1,500 years or so before that. Yes, we stand in a long line of remembrance as we come to the table. Stretches back all the way to the cross, back all the way to the Passover, which foreshadowed the cross. But as we look at these two verses in Genesis 4, we learn that that line of faith in which we stand stretches back even beyond the Passover, all the way back to the first family. Not that they celebrated the sacrament or the Passover, they did not. But their faith was of the same substance as ours. They worshipped as we worship in some ways, in many ways. And so they are a model for us, too, as we come to the table. We see here the faith by which we should come modeled in these two little verses in Genesis 4. Well, let me just read the verses very briefly. Verse 25 and 26. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son. He named him Enosh. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
Now you remember where we are here. In chapter 4, we've already looked at the line of Cain, the murderer, the descendants of the ungodly. We saw kind of what they did and the civilization that they built. But now the, ter- now the, the subject changes. In these last two verses of chapter 4 and then all of chapter 5, we're going to look at the descendants of the godly. Seth is born, and I would trace the descendants of Seth, and we'll see how the godly lived, and we'll look at that more next time. But this is more than just history. This is more than just a genealogy. This is more than just a comparison of two groups of people. Here we have a a model for the faith which we should have as we come to the Lord's Supper. Two things which this passage says, so they're very brief and almost obscure, but let me just explain two things. First of all, here we learn that we ought not to despise our brokenness. Don't despise your brokenness. In case you didn't notice, life can be bitter. No matter how hard you try to build a respectable life, things happen which leave you disillusioned, wounded, and broken. Maybe things of your own making, maybe things of somebody else's uh, uh, doing. But uh, in these times of hurt and pain and uh, despair, we are often tempted to become hardened and resentful. But here we are taught by example to not despise that brokenness. Let me explain. Consider Eve's response to the birth of Seth. You remember how she responded when Cain was born? We just talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Here was a triumph of hope. God had promised that a deliverer would come, and then Cain is born. Surely this must be the promised seed who would destroy Satan, and all of her hopes and dreams were put on Cain. And so an exclamation, so she had exclaimed, remember we said very literally something to this effect, I have brought forth a son even the deliverer. I have brought forth a man, even the deliverer. Oh, but you know what happened. She had not brought forth the deliverer. She had not brought forth the Christ. She had brought forth the killer. And so it came about that she lost both sons. She lost Abel, killed by his brother. And she lost Cain, now guilty and alienated by sin. You don't have to be a mother to understand this kind of heartbreak. I'm sure Eve was crushed, wounded in her soul, and probably all the more as she realized that she was the one who first disobeyed. Now God is pleased to give her another son. Oh, but look how different her response is. Here we see Eve in her brokenness responding. Verse 25, God has granted me another child in place of Abel. What a contrast to the previous statement. Gone is the pride of what she has brought forth. Gone is the assumption that she understands what God's doing. Oh, the hope is still there but it's now expressed in humbled, broken faith. And so she names the boy Seth, 
granted, for God has granted me another child. Alan Ross notes that the motivation for the name is at one time a poignant reminder of the murder and a hopeful anticipation of things to come. For the name Seth may mean something like new beginning or foundation. You see, God allowed great trouble into Eve's life, disillusionment, pain, and despair. But in her brokenness, she learned humility. And in her humility, she teaches us to not despise our brokenness. I think we can see the same thing when we consider Seth's response when his son is born years later. We're told nothing of the details of his life, only that a son was born and how Seth named him. But in the meaning of the name, we learn volumes about the humility that had grown in that family. Seth named his son Enosh, from a verb meaning to be weak, frail, or faint. A word describing man as frail and mortal. The Old Testament scholars Kyle and Dalich explain, in this name, therefore, the feeling and knowledge of human weakness and frailty were expressed. The opposite of the pride and arrogance displayed by the Canaanitish family. You see, Seth had come to understand the weakness of man. And so he renounced the self-sufficiency which we would later hear Lamech boasting about. And instead, even in the name of his son, he said, God has given me a son, a mortal, a frail man. But in doing so, Seth too becomes an example of humility for us, teaching us not to despise our brokenness. Friday evening, the Dead Theologian Society was again reading Jonathan Edwards. The section we read Friday addressed just this point, the necessity of humility and brokenness before the Lord. Let me read just a few lines. Edward says, A truly Christian love, a truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desire of the saints, however earnest, earnest, are humble desires. Their joy is a humble joy. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. And leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a child. Oh, dear friends, this is, what, this is the word of the Lord Jesus to us, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hate to be poor. We hate to be mourning. We hate to be weak. We hate to be hungry. We hate to be humiliated and broken. 
And we live in a world that glories in having it all together. But as we come to the table this morning, I tell you, there is no other way. Only humble, broken, mourning over sin, poor in spirit, little children are welcome here. We don't come to the Lord's table with bravado seeking our reward. We come brokenhearted over sin, receiving mercy. And you see, it's been that way since the beginning. I don't know what trouble God's allowed into your life this morning. I doubt it's worse than the trouble that this first family faced. One son killed by his brother, the other one a killer. But whatever it is, however bitter this this moment, I call you to humble yourself before the Lord and to not despise the brokenness. To come in brokenness and humility to the Lord. Which brings us to the second point, the second truth that we learn here, and that is a call that together let us call upon the name of the Lord. Together let us call upon the name of the Lord. Sometimes when we talk about humility, we think of people who just delight in their humility. It, It becomes a perpetual pity party as they just delve deeper and deeper into themselves and we can hardly stand it after a while. But that's not the effect of the humility and brokenness which we read about here in Genesis 4. This humility caused them to begin to call upon the name of the Lord, we read. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? It's such a familiar sounding phrase that we may have never actually thought about what it might mean. Well, it's got to be the opposite of self-sufficiency. It means looking away from myself. It means understanding that I don't have all that I need and that I'm not all that I ought to be and looking away from myself and looking to God. Looking to Him for His help. Asking Him for His protection. In fact, looking for my own sense of identity and being called by His name. And so this expression, call upon the name of the Lord, becomes an expression which encompasses virtually every expression of our faith. I think of the example of uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. The great showdown between the Lord and the prophets of Baal. And, And the prophets of Baal all gather and they do all their worship rites and all their little cultic practices and and uh, praying to Baal that he would do something, and nothing happens. Then we read that Elijah called upon the name of the Lord, and God was wonderfully, majestically vindicated there, that he is true. All the other gods are nothing. I was reading Psalm 116 this week in my private devotions, and I came upon this phrase there, quite incidentally, even though I was studying this passage. Psalm 116 has two two expressions of this phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. The first one we read in the first few verses, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came upon me, I was overcome by trouble and sorrow, and then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. That's what calling upon the name of the Lord is. 
When we're at the end of our rope, oh Lord, save me. We call upon him in faith. But a few verses later in Psalm 116, we read these words. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call upon the name of the Lord. Well, that's not talking about calling upon God in trouble. That's talking about worship, about praise, about thanksgiving, about adoration, about willing submission. The response to his grace. You see, this is a broad phrase that describes the worship of the faithful. In everything, whether good or bad, we're to be a people who call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the description given us here of the, of the family of Seth. Here in verse 26, at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now certainly there had been individual worship before, Certainly there had been personal expressions of faith. Certainly somebody had cried out to God before, thanked God before. So what happened here that hadn't happened before? What's sane? What's new here? I think what's, happened, what's new here is that here, Adam and Eve and Seth and his family and his descendants began to worship as a people. As a people. Together they called upon the name of the Lord as a particular people who identified themselves with the name of the Lord, as a dependent people who lived in humility, dependent upon the Lord, as a worshiping people who began to consciously render to God the glory due his name. The Old Testament scholars, Kyle and Dalich, again, describe the significance of this verse. Listen to what they say. Here we have an account of the commencement of that worship of God which consists in prayer and praise and thanksgiving or in the acknowledgement and celebration of the mercy and help of Jehovah. While the family of the Canaanites, by the erection of a city and the invention and development of worldly arts, worldly arts and business, were laying the foundation for the kingdom of this world. The family of the Sethites began by united invocation, calling together upon the name of the God of grace, they began to found and to erect the kingdom of God. Or as another writer explains, this narrative thus describes the first affluent society, self-indulgent and self-gratifying, building cities and developing civilization and doing so in defiance of God. And into their midst, God brings his nation, later his church, as his kingdom of priests to worship the Lord and to proclaim his name.
So it's not surprising when we come to the New Testament. We read of the great revelation of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come into the world and suffered and died on the cross and risen from the dead. And what response is it that we're to have to that? Response is just the same as these people back here. We just know more. We understand more of how it is that God saves the people for himself. But the response is exactly the same. Calling upon the name of the Lord. See, the definition of God's people hasn't really changed. In the midst of a world full of arrogance, self-sufficiency, and disregard of the Creator, God has called a people to walk with Him in dependence upon Him, to honor Him, to humble themselves before Him. That was true back then, and it's true today. Now that the Savior has brought salvation. So together, let us call upon the name of the Lord. And we live in a rootless, wandering society. Oh, it constantly makes technological advances, but at the same time, the spiritual alienation from God takes its toll. But in the midst of it all, here we gather this morning around the table of the Lord. In many ways, we're aliens and strangers in the world. But unlike the world, we live in true community. The community of the children of God, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. A community that reaches back all the way to the first family. For in essence, our faith is like theirs. And like Israel's at the Passover, and like the disciples when they sat around the table with the Lord Jesus, not despising our humility and brokenness, we come with genuine repentance. And looking away from ourselves to the Savior, together we call upon the name of the Lord. We come with hearts of true faith. Amen. Father, I pray that you would Give us such hearts of humility, repentance, and such hearts of faith to call upon you and to trust you, Lord, to uh, give allegiance to you in everything. May that be our attitude, too. We who know so much, we who have understood your great plan of salvation revealed in the Lord Jesus. And now, uh, bless our celebration of the supper together. And may it uh, seal to our hearts these truths of the gospel from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.